This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the Day After Easter program. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, life questions, anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. I hope and pray you had a wonderful Easter yesterday. Um, I've been asked over and over um, today about, about my impressions of yesterday here at our church, and uh, you know, a year ago, uh, Easter before, there were nine people in the sanctuary. Um, we normally do our Easter Sundays at a big venue uh, because we have a couple thousand people that show up. And, of course, we can't fit them in our building. Um, nobody's renting those places. So yesterday we had it here, uh, did three services. We lengthened the services a little bit. Uh, and, and it was just, it was like a breath of spiritual fresh air people were so filled with joy and they were so happy to be here and we had tons and tons of people that were here and uh, it was just wonderful it was communion sunday it fell on the first sunday of a month uh, this year so it was just almost a perfect day probably the only thing not perfect was my message but everything else was great my worship pastor i love him so much um he's a crybaby Things move his heart. It's just, that's just who he is. And when he turned around and saw all the people and remembered back to last Easter when it was just nine of us who were here, um, he started crying a little bit. And it, it was really a moving time. And, and uh, boy, the Lord was glorified. Some people got saved. Our Good Friday service was really, really special. Some people got saved there as well. So it's just one of those times that you think, okay, Jesus, been a hard year. But there's always joy in your presence. And I hope and pray that was the case with you. Okay, let me get to questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, The first one's not really a question as much as it is a statement. 
Um, and it is a complaint, really, from our email inbox. This one is from Joe. And Joe, uh, let me let me say at the outset that I really do appreciate at least you put a name to it. Most of the time I get stuff like this, it's anonymous. And frankly, um, most anonymous complaints, I just don't even listen to at all. But Joe was angry with me, said, I was listening to your show. It is reprehensible to broadcast your contempt for the Catholic Church and Catholics in general. Who made you a judge? Uh, Joe, um, I, I, I tell people I'm going to read everything, so I'm not do- dodging any questions. Um, but you didn't hear a word I said. You're typical of a lot of people. If if I'm not gushing over Catholics or the Catholic Church, you you consider it reprehensible, uh, bashing the Catholic Church. I have never done that. Um, my heart for Catholics who aren't saved um, is a broken heart. That's the Lord's heart. And, you know, with Catholics so close, they've got the same Father, the same Son, the same Holy Spirit. What I said on Thursday, I got this email on Friday of last week when we weren't on the air. Um, uh, what I said was that Catholics um, are not born again, most of them, um, because the Catholic Church doesn't think you have to be. Jesus is the one who said you have to be. I have no contempt for the Catholic Church. I certainly have nothing but love for Catholics in general. I just want them to be in heaven. And Joe, you asked me who made me a judge. I'm not a judge. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And that's the problem. Sometimes people like you, Joe, get so emotional. Yeah, I understand your investment in the Catholic Church. But all I said was, and the only thing I said was, that most Catholics are not born again because the Catholic Church doesn't teach you have to be. But I also said, in answer, direct answer to question, this wasn't some topic I ran off with. Uh, I had to question, how can Catholics be saved if, if they don't teach born again? One of the listeners was having a problem with that. And I said to him, oh, make no mistake, there are Catholics who are born again Christians. I just said there are not many of them. And Joe, you can't demonstrate that that statement isn't 100% true. It was said in love. As I said earlier, it was said with a broken heart. I want all Catholics, Joe, including you, to be in heaven. And you don't get there by doing good works. You don't get there by belonging to the Catholic Church. You certainly don't get there by being baptized as an infant. You get there by having a living faith with Jesus Christ, not with the church, but with Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves It is the gift of God. So who made me a judge? It's simple, the Bible. We have to decide if traditions of the Catholic Church are authoritative or if the Word of God is authoritative. It can't be both ways, especially when those traditions contradict what the Bible says. So, Joe, I'm not upset with you. I would ask you to listen a little more carefully and listen to the heart behind Whatever it is I say, and it's okay to disagree, but Joe, in this case, you cannot make a position. You can't take a stand for the Catholic Church biblically. You can only do it religiously or emotionally. And make no mistake, I'll repeat for the last time, I want Catholics in heaven. I'm afraid that most Catholics 
are going to get to heaven and find out that they have an eternal life insurance policy that's not going to be cashed. You must be born again. Jesus himself said that to the most religious of all Jews. He said that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And it's so important he repeated it twice. So, Joe, I have no contempt. That was an unfair accusation. Uh, Neither for the Catholic Church. I'm sad that the Catholic Church doctrinally is so far off what the Bible teaches. Uh, I certainly have no contempt for Catholics. I would guess, Joe, that more than 90% of the people who come to my church come from Catholic backgrounds. We live in San Antonio, Texas. So, Joe, I hope at least you consider my heart. Here is a question. This time is respectfully a follower of Christ uh, from Philip. Uh, Hello, Pastor. Good day to you and Paula. Thank you, Philip. In Acts chapter 6, there is a mention of the synagogue of the freedman that opposed Stephen. Is there any more information about them? Did they rise to prominence once Jesus was gone, or were they there the entire time? Uh, Philip, there's very little information about the synagogue of the freedmen. We know that it was a synagogue, so we know that they were Jews. The fact that they were freedmen would indicate that these were Jews uh, who had Roman citizenship. It's further speculated, and again, we don't know this, but it seems as though, remember, Saul of Tarsus was there. It seems as though that this would have been Saul of Tarsus. We know him as the Apostle Paul, his old synagogue before he met Jesus. So that's all we know, but the synagogue of the freedmen would be a political statement that that we are Jews, but we are not uh, slaves. We're, we're not. We're we're men who have Roman citizenship, and we have the freedom to move about. And so that's the only information that we have. And there's really uh, historically very little evidence uh, of anything beyond that. So I think it was a mention more that Saul of Tarsus was there, uh, giving consent to Stephen's death, um, but. Um, that's really and truly all that we know about the synagogue of the freedmen. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Sam from our email inbox. He said, I visited your church and I have a few questions. The first is, why don't you do communion every Sunday? Um, Sam, we don't do communion every Sunday. There's there's no uh, instruction biblically about how often to do communion, only that we're to do it regularly and the heart that we're to do it with whenever we do. And what we're to remember, we're to remember that Jesus died for our sins. We're to remember that Jesus is coming again uh, and coming soon. So those are the things that we're to remember. But we do it uh, the first Sunday of every month. It's the way we've always done it here. And the reason we do it that um, on that time frame is because uh, I don't want people to take it for granted. You know, in churches, uh, different traditions that take communion daily, some of them, uh, others every week. Um, in talking to people 
before I started pastoring, it's just like communion was no big deal. I don't want it to be something that we take for granted. I want coming to the table of the Lord. It's also, Sam, why I don't do it on Wednesdays or Fridays. And, you know, uh, we're on a tight time schedule schedule on Sundays. And it would be much more convenient if we, well, let's just move to Wednesday or let's just move it to, to Friday nights. Uh, but uh, on on Sundays when the, the body's together, uh, in my view, that's the time to partake of communion. And that's why we do it uh, on the first Sunday of every month. But um, there's no prohibition uh, against doing it every Sunday. Uh, I don't think it's wrong to do it every Sunday. I just think that um, I want it to be something special. Very quickly, Sam, you know, when, when I first got saved, Paul and I, we were nuts because um, um, I was so excited about the Lord. And we went to three or four different churches at times on Sundays. We'd get up early, go to first service, go find another church with a second service or a third service later, and then we'd go to the evening service. And and when they were doing communion, uh, when we walked in, we'd see the communion elements set up or the announcer would announce that uh, communion is going to be held that day. We'd almost get giddy, Paul and I. We'd just sort of high-five each other because, oh, we get to take communion again. That's how excited we were. And I want the people here at Calvary Chapel to have that kind of excitement every time they come to the Lord's table. Uh, The second question is, why do we use instruments in the church? Because they are not of the Lord. Uh, Sam, in that particular case, with this question, um, I don't know what makes you think that instruments are not of the Lord. Uh, he says he enjoyed the service, but when I told the pastor of the church I regularly attend, he said that using instruments are not of the Lord. So now I'm curious about that. Um, it sounds to me like you have a Church of Christ background. Um, they don't use musical instruments, or, or most do not use musical instruments. And their only justification for it is that there's no mention in the New Testament of instruments being used. But that's an argument from silence. That's not a a, a, a good way to approach our Bibles. There's a lot of things that aren't uh, spoken about in the Bible, um, but certainly the Old Testament gives us plenty of of. Uh, tradition for musical instruments. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, um, the harp and the lyre, and, and, and so instruments were used from the very beginning in, worship of, uh, in the worship of God. But, but for you or the pastor to suggest that they're not of the church. Now, I don't know when you uh, visited our church, Sam, but when you looked at the hearts of the people that were leading the worship and then looked around at the people who were worshiping. All you could see was Jesus. All you could see was Jesus. There was so much joy and the worship was so genuine. And so, um, you know, that's a bias based on, I think, a, a faulty church experience. Um, um, you know, there's other problems with the Church of Christ. They believe that baptismal salvation um, is is uh, required. You you must be baptized in order to be saved instead of baptism as a result of being saved. Uh, we would disagree very strongly there. 
Um, but but this whole idea, well, no musical instruments are, are listed in the New Testament or in the book of Acts, so that means God didn't want us to have them. That's really, really horrible exegesis. That's, that's not even honest scholarship. So um, the service, uh, uh, looking at the worship, the people leading worship, all you could see was the love of God. So um, have a biblical reason for doing what you do and believing what you believe rather than just taking what somebody says, well, this is our church tradition. We've always believed. Uh, I can promise you that the worship that you've experienced when you were here was genuine, it was fun, the people's hearts were filled with joy. And you know what else I know, Sam? I know that Jesus was thrilled. I know that Jesus was thrilled. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. And thanks for visiting the church. Here is an anonymous question. Um, oh, from yesterday's sermon, your message. Uh, Pastor Ron, you always say we should take the Bible literally. In your sermon yesterday, you said that when Paul used the words fallen asleep, you said it meant death. The literal says they went to sleep. That's not being consistent. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. However, this is why, Anonymous, we have to be stewards rightly dividing the word of God. Like the Bereans, checking things out. Um, clearly, we take the Bible literally. Whenever and wherever you can. But there are other times when we're to take it figuratively because there's no other way to take it. And then as in this case, I'll talk about it in a moment, there are times when one of the authors of the Bible, or in this case Jesus himself, gives us um, the, the right way to look at something. Now, literally, uh, you can't say, the, the psalmist writes, the trees of the field clap their hands. Now, no one can take that literally because trees don't have hands and certainly they don't clap their hands. So we understand that's poetic language. Um, the, the poetic books, um, the Psalms, Job, um, um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Um, those um, uh, books are poetic and there's a lot of symbolism in them in there. Um, but but when it makes sense to take the Bible literally, that's exactly what we do, and that's the only way really to study the Bible. In yesterday's situ uh, study, I was talking from 1 Corinthians about Paul, who's saying if the dead in Christ are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, then we're all lost in our sins. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and when Paul talked about falling asleep, it was clear from the context that he meant they died. Those who are lost, those who have fallen asleep. Now here's the tool we use. John chapter 11, Jesus, when he was summoned uh, by Mary and Martha to come to Lazarus' house because Lazarus was sick. Lord, come and heal your, the one who loves you, the one you love. Uh, please get here as quickly as you can. Well, Jesus, you will remember, intentionally waited four days. And uh, when his disciples uh, said, when Jesus said, okay, we, we, we're going to go, uh, 
Um, they said, but, but Lazarus, Jesus said, is asleep. And his disciples said to him, well, Lord, if he sleeps, that's good. He'll get better. Because they thought Jesus was talking about real sleep, natural sleep. But the reality, and Jesus explained it, Lazarus, and he said it clearly, Lazarus is dead. And then he said, now let's go, because of course he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. So in the first century, sleeping or being or falling asleep was nothing more than a euphemism for death. And there's no other way, Anonymous, that you can take that that makes any sense at all in the context of the passage. And then again, in John chapter 11, we have Jesus himself giving us the key to the understanding. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to James from Belmont, Texas, on line one. James, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, thanks for taking my uh, my call. Um, I got back a couple of weeks ago from uh, Loma de Luz in Honduras. Uh, enjoyed uh, enjoyed you while I was down there. Had a couple of questions. Won't hit you up with all at the same time because that would probably okay. be a special show. It may take about a week. Um, <laughs> okay. Because I'm always always have questions, but the one that kind of burns on my mind just a little bit more, uh, and um, I'm using my Bluetooth as I'm driving. I want to say it was John chapter 20. Um, it was uh, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, he uh, Jesus uh, came before the disciples, and uh, essentially, like with the angels, I'm sure they were all in fear, and he says. You know, don't be afraid or peace be with you. Uh, but he essentially says, uh, the Father sent me, and so I'm going to send you. And then he breathed upon them um, and said, trying to remember, uh, uh, receive the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then he makes the statement after that. And so there's a couple of different questions. One is um, that the... The Father sent him. I guess, theoretically, the Father sent him everywhere. Uh, But uh, I was curious why that was said here. How did the Father send him there before? Uh, Then, also, the Holy Spirit, my understanding, was to come after Jesus um, was done uh, at the at the hand of his father, uh, when it was all finished, he was going to send the Holy Spirit. But here he is breathing the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. Did he do that as kind of a foretelling so that they would be familiar with this when they saw this again? Or And, and then the whole thing about, and I, I'm not sure how this is worded, but he essentially told them that, um, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven, and if you don't forgive sins, they're not forgiven. But he directed that toward the apostles, and so it was odd to me that uh, that what, what, what authority was he uh, giving them at that point in time? I know that he wanted mm-hmm. uh, them to... Uh, the, that they were going to be the catalyst for the, the Church and the Pentecost... Uh, 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 and so forth, but I, I just, I guess there's those three questions, but I really okay. did not understand forgiving sins and sins being forgiven. Okay, forgiven. thank you. 
Thanks, James. I appreciate it. And I may have to carry the answer over to the other side of the break, but uh, I'll do as much as I can before the break. Uh, first thing, <clears throat> I've got two minutes. Um, Jesus, when he said, peace be with you, and Jesus is always saying, peace be with you. And remember, this is the risen Christ. He says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. This is his beginning of commissioning the 12 or the 11 at this point, disciples to become apostles. Um, he, he's saying, you are my messenger. Just as the Father sent me, remember, Jesus said, it is finished. My work is now done. And he could dismiss his spirit. Jesus said, okay, my time here physically is done. Now I'm sending you and you're going to be me. And James, this is one of the most wonderful things. Um, I, I mean, think about it. We are ambassadors of the Most High God. Now, he's speaking specifically to the 11, but in the same way, he's sending us. The job isn't done. The, the book of Acts in heaven is literally still being written. So he, he's just commissioning them in these few verses, and he's taking them to the next step. He's already told them before he, he died, he said, you know, it's good for you that I go away. I have more to say to you than you can now bear. And though this is now part of what he's fulfilling or filling in all of the details. So he, here is your commission now, it's a specific commission, peculiar only to the 11. However, as I said, there's immense application for us as well. And then he said, uh, receive the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about that in a moment as well. But there's the music. We are at the end of the first half of the program. We would love to have your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the word to stand on for life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585. James, um, this, I, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John chapter 20. Um, oh, it's just so rich. And in this particular case, as I said, he's commissioning the 12. It's a very specific calling and sending, but there's a lot for us to understand. Uh, our, our commission, we have to be sent. Nobody can take it upon themselves to go. Jesus is appearing to them. And he's saying, now, this is a lot of faith. Now, I know Jesus doesn't have faith like you and I have faith, but but he's expressing a lot of confidence. It's good for you that I go away. Okay, now I'm going to go away because... The Father sent me. I've finished my race here. I'm sending you to complete the race. And then he had to give them the means to do that. And so he said, it says next, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. Um, the idea there is you can't do anything for the Lord apart from the Spirit of God. And this was part of their commissioning as apostles. Now, don't confuse this with Acts chapter 2, which would happen 
some 50 days later, um, that was when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. The Holy Spirit made this dramatic entrance in the world, but Peter, James, and John, uh, and and the others, they they had now the, the Spirit of God uh, in a way that they never really could have understood before. And so Jesus is commissioning them, and he's empowering them, and then he's giving them instructions for how to fulfill the work. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That does not mean, and, and the Catholic Church has really misunderstood this, uh, you know, they say, well, only priests can forgive sins, only priests can administer the sacraments, those kind of things. That's not what he's saying. Look, I've given you the message. The message is is, is salvation by grace, through faith, believing in Jesus Christ. And so anybody who made that profession of faith, then the apostles were qualified. Now, you and I are qualified now, James. They're qualified to pronounce forgiveness. I got to do that a couple of times this weekend in just individual conversations. Tell somebody, look, your sins are forgiven. You are brand new. And then when it said, if you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. In other words, if somebody rejects the message of the gospel, then the apostles weren't free to say, okay, you're forgiven. You know, James, one of the things that this always reminds me of, verse 23, is uh, after 9-11, there was a, a famous scene now of a Catholic priest running away from the buildings and all of the crowds by him. And the picture was taken just as the buildings were starting to crumble. And that Catholic priest uh, was pronouncing the the, uh, absolution of all of the sins of the people in those buildings. And see, he didn't have the authority to do that. The only way their sins could be forgiven is by believing in Jesus Christ. And one of the great things, and I shared this uh, last week in answer to a question, um, all over the trade, the, the, the towers, uh, the World Trade Center, um, um, on every floor there were people getting saved. God has Christians everywhere. There were people getting saved. And in some of those places, a, a man named Al Bracco, whose wife Jeannie I actually served on the same stage with um, the, on the year anniversary of 9-11, um, um, he was leading 50 people to Christ on his floor before those towers fell. And he could pronounce the forgiveness of sins. So that's what's meant here, James, and it's just a wonderful uh, commissioning passage of Scripture. Thanks a lot. Here is a question from Lisa. Do you think Christians should keep their kids out of public schools? Uh, Lisa, I'm going to give my opinion, and I don't like to do that very often. I'm going to answer your question. Um, I'm going to take the long way around. I have always believed that public schools needed our Christian kids in them. I've always believed that. Um, I, I think some people have a calling. We have some kids at our church who are wonderful evangelists, and, and I'm talking about from young all, all the way through high school. And uh, I always felt like the unsaved kids needed them. And so I didn't believe as a mandate that Christian kids should avoid public schools. Since that time, Lisa, so much has changed. Um the evil that's being crammed down the throats of kids from kindergarten 
up. It's 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 worse than evil. It's dangerous, uh, and and I, I I could not in good conscience. Again, this is my opinion. I could not in good conscience um, send my children to be brainwashed by an evil system like that. And that's uh, there's wonderful teachers, many of whom are Christian in public schools, uh, but for the most part, they're they're muzzled. There are things that they can't say. They can't tell the kids about Jesus. Now, I think they should, even if they can't, but that's another question. But I believe with all of my heart that that um, there ought to be a warning label for parents uh, on public schools because they're going to try to brainwash your children. It's just that simple. Cindy, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Happy Easter. I didn't get to hug you for the first Easter in a very long time. I know, but the 25th I'll be back and I'll be hugging. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I really liked yesterday. I, I like the way that, you know, it's the same subject every Easter, but it's such a different direction that we end up in the same place, but it's always so interesting the way the Lord has given you the insight of all the different paths to take to get there, and I just really mm. liked it. Thank you, Cindy. But what, I, but what I called about was, I'm kind of wondering now, Christmas is always the 25th of December, and I think we have evidence or we have kind of thoughts that maybe Jesus was born in the spring and not in the dead of winter. And what I'm really curious about is, one, um, what if on his birth, in, in his birthday when he was born, it was really in the spring, because we celebrate Easter in the spring, and what, what if... The same day he was born was the same day he was resurrected. It's just one of my, you know, crazy thoughts. But what I'm wondering <laughs> is, how come Easter flip-flops around the calendar so much? Why, why don't they, what, how, how do they determine that that day, you know, is Easter and then the next year it's something else? And then I just want to say something about our worship team. I think we have got the best worship team on the planet. <laughs> Every it's like going to a little mini high-end concert. I just love it. And you can tell everybody practices really well, and it's just fantastic. And I wouldn't mind, personally, if we got a violin up on the stage, too. So I will leave you Cindy, with all of this. Okay, before um, you hang up, Cindy, I, okay, before you hang up, I've got a confession to make. I was checking out the, the cute black chick on the stage yesterday. <laughs> she did look cute. <laughs> man, she can sing, too. Ooh, that girl yeah. thing. <laughs> Thank you, Cindy. Like bye. Bye bye. God bless. You know, I um I've always wanted to hear Paula singing, and Paula's a cute black chick. Okay, so don't think I was being forward or untoward. Um, but I've always wanted to hear Paula sing with violins. So Cindy, uh we need two things. We need string players. And we need a much bigger stage and a bigger room so that we have better sound. So there's a lot we need. So San Antonio, please pray. We need more space. We really, truly need more space. Um, having said that, I, our worship team is wonderful. I I hit the jackpot. You know, in 26 years, I've had two worship pastors. The first one I had for 10 years, and then Pastor Elaine uh, was sent to me by the Lord. And um, uh, I just hit the jackpot. Uh, a heart to match the quality of music 
And uh, it was it was absolutely wonderful. So I agree. Cindy, about Easter. I don't know. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct you to Google the reason. I know that it centers around the equinox. Uh, the date follows the, the equinox, and I've never really cared enough to find out why. I, like you, I would be one who would be all for um, having it the first or second Saturday of April every year so it would be easier to plan on. We've actually had Easter as early as the the the, the end of March and as late as mid-April. And, um, you know, it changes things. There's always so much preparation and things. But uh, I don't really know the reason. Now, one other comment, Cindy. Um, I, I don't think, we, we don't know when Jesus was born. We don't know what the date was. But I favor, I strongly favor uh, a late winter, uh, even a December date, not the 25th. We know why Christmas is celebrated on the 25th. Um, but the people who say, we know it happened in springtime because the shepherds were out in the fields. Uh, and people say, well, the sheep wouldn't be out in the fields if it was winter because it would be cold. A couple of things. It's not always that cold in the winter in Israel. The second thing, there was always sheep because those would have been the temple shepherds. Um, they would have been the ones who, who were the shepherds for the, the animals that were going to be sacrificed, who were brought for sacrifice. So uh, I really do believe that it's, or at least I favor um, a December-ish uh, birth date for Jesus, um, but uh, it's really inconsequential, and uh, I, I don't think it's an important thing at all, but, but that's just what I think. Um, my, my crack research team is telling me Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday following the full moon that occurs on or just after the spring equinox. So the first full moon. So that's why it changes. But Cindy, I think you and I should start a letter writing campaign. Let's stay on daylight savings time all year round. And then let's make Easter the same day or the same week every year. Thank you. Let's go to, oh, we lost David. David, I'm sorry for keeping you holding. Uh, David from church, the phones are empty now. You're free to call back and I'll stop what I'm doing and take your call. Here is a question from Anonymous. Does God want us to have lots of children, or is it okay to limit the number of children that you have? Um, I think God wants us to have lots of children. I also think it's okay to limit the number of children you have. I think this is one of those things God doesn't, he didn't give us um, a specific amount. Uh, I, I know we, Paul and I, had two kids. Uh, I look back and would love to have had more, but but two was fine. Um, I know families that have lots of kids, and um, they're doing great. So I don't think it really matters whether you have a lot of them or if you choose to limit them. Um, it just depends sort of what God's put on your heart to do. What I do know is that whoever, however many children you have, the way to deal with those kids is to raise them up to love Jesus. I got to um, dedicate a baby again yesterday. We've had just a spate of 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 uh, baby dedications here in the last couple of months. And uh, I got to dedicate a, a, another baby yesterday uh, here at Calvary Chapel. And they bring such joy. They bring such joy. Uh, you know, the, the, the mom is somebody who was raised in our church, I mean, from the time she was very, very, very little. And so to watch these moms grow up, 
um, go through the school and their teenage years and um, you're always hoping and praying that God brings the right man and they don't fall in love with the wrong man kind of thing. Uh, it was just wonderful yesterday. I got to, to dedicate uh, Titus Walker King yesterday and it was absolutely a joy. Here is a question from Lewis or Louis. I don't know exactly which. Uh, Lewis asks, do you think Christians should favor reparations? Um, <laughs> I don't think we have an opinion on reparations. Um, I, I, personally, I'm going to say this tongue-in-cheek, but people have asked me this question because this keeps coming up over and over in the news. And and I tell them, I'm all for reparations. And they say, you are. And because they're surprised, because I'm fairly conservative. Um, uh, you're in favor of why? I said, look, I'm married to a black woman. I, I want to find out how much money we're talking about. But, um, um, you know, there's no biblical principle for reparations. There's, there's no way to pay back um, the harm that was done through slavery throughout the world, and especially in the United States of America. And I think that paying back people who are not slaves is unwise and uh, unnecessary. So um, I think this is a political position people take. I don't think it really has anything to do with Jesus um, at all. Um, here's what I think. I think all Christians should favor everybody getting saved. And then we join a very, very, very wealthy family. Um, but but uh, that's a little out of my area of expertise other than having a personal opinion. Here is a question from Virginia. Do I have to honor the request of my family members to stop speaking about God? They won't let me in their homes unless I agree. Virginia, uh, I've actually been on the, the same end of this as you are. When people say, look, you can come over, but don't talk about God. Don't tell people they need to get saved. Don't talk about Jesus. And I frankly, I just tell them, look, if you don't want Jesus there with you, then don't invite me. And Virginia, I, I'm, I'm okay. Maybe it's different for you, but I'm okay. If they don't want Jesus, then they're not going to have me, and I'm okay with that. Um, when you say they won't let you in their home, it's, it's almost like they're holding that over your head to see grandchildren or other relatives. Uh, here's the thing. Just tell them, look, okay, I'll, I'll have time with Jesus. It's okay. And and, and what you're doing, what you're doing is um, showing them how much Jesus means to you. You know, I can't imagine a Christian who would agree not to talk about Jesus just to get an invitation to somebody's home because if you do that, the people who live in that home, family or otherwise, they're going to say, well, I guess they don't really mean, uh, they're not all that serious about Jesus because they honored the request. Um, it's interesting. We had a, a lady from the gym who just flat out told Paula. And her and Paula had nice conversations. And Paula was always nice. And I think Paula was a little surprised. But she said, look, I love talking to you. But can we just talk without you talking about Jesus? We don't believe that, and I just don't want to hear about it anymore. And the answer was, well, no, because 
Jesus is always where I am. Why would I not want to talk about Jesus? And um, I think, you know, we have Jesus' own words. He said he came to divide families. That wasn't his purpose. He was talking about that will be the effect. And when people start telling you to, to be quiet or don't come, then you realize, shake the dust off your feet. It, it will hurt. I understand the, 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 the relation and the connection. Um, but the truth of the matter is, you got to show them you love Jesus more than you love them, more than you love your grandkids, whatever else. So um, I would not honor the request. Uh, I would frankly let them know that I was a little offended by the fact that they made the request but that don't worry, I love you, and I'll be praying for you. And if you ever want me and Jesus to come back to your home, we'd love to accept the invitation. And I think, Virginia, that's the best way to deal with something like that. But never, ever honor the request of somebody not to talk about the Lord. I mean, what did Peter say? As for me, I cannot stop declaring this name. And he did that right after having been beaten for doing that very thing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from David. He said, "Since Jesus died for the sins of everyone, won't everyone somehow make it to heaven?" David, the answer to your question is no. Everyone's not going to get to heaven. Jesus's sins were uh, effective. Uh, the, the word is efficacious, but but effective. Uh, works better, I think, for us. Uh, effective for the sins of the whole world. Everybody, all they need to do is believe, and Jesus' blood covers all the sins. Um, but Jesus said that the road to heaven is narrow, and few find it. You know, humans, we don't like being forced to make a choice. We want to have the freedom to sin and believe whatever we believe, and we believe, well, I'm a good person, I'm going to go to heaven. Um, but Jesus said the, the road is few and, there, and or narrow and few find it. He also said the road to destruction is wide and well-traveled. So you got two little roads, one almost people walking in single file, and then the other one, um, it's like a traffic jam and everybody's happy on their way to hell. Um, Jesus' death was efficient for the sins of the world, but it was only effective for those who believe. You see, David, Jesus gave us a gift. If I gave you a gift for your birthday or Christmas and you never opened it, my gift would have no value to you. It could be the most valuable gift ever, but my gift would have no value for you. If you opened it, if you received it, then you'd be able to, to enjoy the value of the gift. Well, that's what Jesus did for us. He offered himself as a sacrifice. The empty tomb that we celebrated yesterday at Easter, the empty tomb validates what Jesus said, that he alone is the way to heaven, the way to his Father, and no one will get there except through him. And what that means going forward is that it's impossible for somebody who isn't righteous covered by the blood of Jesus. Remember, it's not self-righteousness. It's righteousness imputed, righteousness given to us. That's the only way we can make it to heaven. 
So the idea, David, I understand how romantic it is, how goosebumpy it is to think, well, well, Jesus is God of love, and, and somehow everybody's going to get to heaven. Um, that's not what the Bible tells us at all. In fact, just the opposite. So unfortunately, apart from Jesus Christ, everybody who's ever lived on the face of this earth is going to spend eternity separated from God. Now remember, Romans 1 tells us that God gave us a conscience. He gave us creation. Day after day, the heavens declare the glory of God, we're told. And if someone is really seeking the God of that creation, Jesus will reveal himself to them. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if we do what is right in our conscience, if we appeal to the God of creation, um, there's a lot of people who have died without ever hearing the name Jesus, but they were faithful with what they had. That's how Jews were saved before Jesus. And that same thing is true in the world. So David, I hope that helps. Thinking about running out of time, how we got a couple minutes. Um, here's a question from Miguel. He says, uh, Pastor on 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus became sin. How could he become sin if he is perfect? Well, Miguel, he, he had to be perfect to become sin. You see, he was without sin, and it took a perfect sacrifice. So on the cross, what 2 Corinthians 5 says is Jesus literally became our sin. Jesus made a deal with us, uh, and it's a business tra- transaction, the best business deal any of us will ever get. Jesus said, if you give me your filth, I will give you my perfection. And that's what he did. So remember, Jesus was perfect, but he had to take our sin upon him as he was also taking on the wrath of God because of our sins. And so that's that's what that whole transaction um, is about, Miguel. Jesus was perfect, sinless, like us in every way except without sin. And yet, on the cross, he literally became our sin. And all we have to do is ask for forgiveness, repent of our sins, ask Jesus to take over control of our life, come into our heart. And then this glorious truth, we are perfect. Even if we're sort of struggling, walking out that perfection uh, practically in our lives, Jesus sees us as perfect. Boy, that's a thrill for me. Miguel, thanks a lot. Hey, thank you for the calls. I appreciate the questions. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Have a great, great evening. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.